Now, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We find ourselves going through the Bible, Colossians chapter 3. And we are looking at two verses. We've been breaking it down. Um, going through Colossians last week, we looked at marriage and what I do through marriage, premarital counseling, and we were able to go through just that series of things that a strong and vibrant marriage should have, and we looked at the roles within marriage. Today, this morning, the title of the message, Raising Godly Children, and again, we start in Colossians chapter 3. Let's read it, and then we'll pray. Colossians, let me find it, chapter 3. And all the way at verse 20 and 21, the Bible says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they be discouraged. And so we're going to look at raising godly children in a godless society, in a very difficult society to do that. And I don't want you to think that, well, I can go ahead and check out. I don't have kids or my kids have moved on. Uh, We all should have individuals that are under us, whether it's spiritual children or individuals that we should be discipling. When John wrote um, in 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy to see that my children walk in truth. It was a reference to his disciples, to the individuals that he was discipling in the Lord. And so the Great Commission has not been taken away. It still exists, right? Matthew chapter 28, go into all the world Preach the gospel, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. And so we still have the Great Commission. We should have children under us, whether, again, those are our physical children by birth, adopted children, uh, or mentors, or individuals that are disciples, individuals that we are taking through and discipling them. We should all have children. And so there's application for this study, raising godly children Colossians 3, 20 and 21, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for just what you've blessed us with, and we pray your blessing upon this time. Open up our eyes, open up our ears, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit says to the church this morning in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen, Amen. raising godly children. I want to remind you that in the world... If people are messed up, if children have gone astray and they've gone awry, there's two arguments in education that will say, well, it's, it's nurture. And there's another group that says, no, no, it's nature. It's their environment. No, no, it was their parents and how they were brought up. No, it was the gangs in their community and their horrible surroundings. And so there's this argument, is it nurture or is it nature? Is it their environment or is it the way they were brought up? I want to remind you that God, the perfect father, placed his children in paradise, the perfect environment, and they made a choice to rebel. And so sometimes parents take on too much responsibility in both sides. Their children turn out great and they're serving God or they're involved in ministry and you look at them and they 
act as though they had everything to do with that. And Well, I'm pretty sure God had something to do with it too, but okay, you know, that's neat. You have godly children and that's a blessing. And other times if their children are in rebellion and they've gone astray, sometimes through guilt, this guilt is heaped on the parent to think, well, I've just ruined them and it's all my fault and nothing could be further from the truth. We want to do our best, we commit the rest. And so as we do what God has told us to do, We just take our hands off and we leave the results up to God. But ultimately, there are things within the scripture that God has given us in raising children. And so I found this article, 10 Keys to Raising Godly Children by Family Fortress Ministries. And they had 10 things. We're going to look at five of theirs and then I added one. So there's really 11, but it's really only six because I'm not going to mention five. Or I'll mention the five, but I'll just not go in great detail. So hopefully you're confused. Is it 5, 11, 6? Where are we at? I'm confused. There's about 11 things that we're going to look at, but I'm not going to go into great detail on five of them. Amen? Number one, 10 keys or 11 keys to raising godly children. Number one, develop a passionate relationship with God. By the way, we're going to be going through four different books in the Bible, so get your fingers ready. I know a lot of times we're in Colossians, and let's just stay there. Now I want to hear some pages turn in today. So turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the fifth book in the Bible. It would be the last book of the Torah or the law. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. Fifth book in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So as we go through this, again, we're looking at raising godly children, and we have something to learn. All of us can learn from this topic. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you have what's called the great Shema, S-H-E-M-A, the Hebrew word from hear, O Israel, the first words in the great Shema. And every religious Jew prays this prayer every day. And they pray it right out of the scriptures. It says in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Last night at our married couples fellowship, these are the exact same scriptures that God had placed on Richard's heart to share in our introduction study for the year, and what a blessing that was to be there, to be a part of that. Number one, these keys to raising godly children develop a passionate relationship with God. So you will notice how enlightening that before God commands parents to diligently teach their children in verse 7, he first instructs them to passionately love him in verses 5 and 6. God wants parents to understand that they cannot transfer to their children what they do not possess themselves. The foundation for both a great marriage and successful parenting is to love the Lord supremely above every other love. And so God, before he's giving them these instructions to teach them diligently to your children, he's saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. I think here, and then in Mark's gospel, he had strength. 
So you love God first, okay? Number two, we're not going to go into great detail, but strong marriages add stability to a child's life. And so last week we looked at marriage and how important that is, how important it is to have a stable marriage within the home for children to see that. And what it does is it creates a safety net for them. The world is a battlefield and the world is one of our enemies as the Christian. And so as they come into the home and they see stability and they know there's safety there, there's a great opportunity for them to grow in the things of the Lord. Number three would be make the word of God your standard. Many people have opinions about how this should take place, but God should trump that above all. And so God's word should have a prominent place in our homes, in our lives as we raise our children. Number four, parents must be on the same page. And so parents uh, need to be unified. There should be a structure within the home. The hierarchy of those attributes that we looked at, those God-given roles within the home of a husband being the leader of the house, the wife falling in line under submission to the leadership of her husband. And again, that's important of, of the structure that God has created. It wasn't a suggestion. God wasn't like just bored and came up with something to come up with. He knows what he's talking about. Number five would be protect your children There's a lot of damaging, damning things that take place in this world. And unfortunately, kids are being exposed to things younger and younger and younger. Things that I wasn't exposed to until I entered into high school today, kids are being exposed to in elementary. And so because of that, parents need to come and give them truth and speak truth to them from the word of God and counter the lies of the enemy and the things that they're hearing in the culture. Number six, bless your children. Bless your children. In the Old Testament, over and over, you would see the fathers would take their children and lay their hands on them and they would bless them. And so it's very important for us to think of ways that we can bless our children. I'll give you a true story here. I remember one time, When my daughter was in about the third grade, she had signed up for a talent show, and Roxanne, who is my equalizer, she's my grounding rod, I had, on a Thursday night, a responsibility to teach the college and career ministry. I was the pastor of the college and career, and so I remember there was this one night where she was, uh, Jamie was going to be doing this talent show, and I was thinking, wow, Jamie doesn't have any talent, what the heck, this is going to be crazy, I'm so scared for her. And so Roxanne dragged me, if you will, kicking and screaming. No, you got to go. You got to support your daughter. This is important. Yeah, you have that ministry thing, but this is important. You need to be there. And so we set it up where worship would get started and everything would be able to take place. And I was able to go. And then after she would do her performance, I would be able to go and teach that night within the college and career. And so we go and we're sitting in the back. And I remember in the sanctuary at Downey, holds 3,000 people, and there was standing room only. There were 3,000-plus people, and so there we are in the back, and I'm, like, talking to Roxanne, like, what is she going to do? Like, she ain't got no talent. I'm kind of scared. I'm a little, little nervous for her. And Roxanne's like, I don't know. She just had some friend that wanted to, like, do this singing thing, and then she was going to, I don't know, do something with it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, okay, this is probably going to be pretty embarrassing. And so... Her friend comes out on stage, and then Jamie's kind of standing in the background, and her friend starts doing this little thing, and I'm like, well, okay, that's kind of cheesy, but all right, well, and then Jamie all of a sudden just 
takes center stage. She's doing these flips and somersaults, toe touches, and it's like, and I'm all like sitting up in my seat. I'm all like, Hercules, Hercules. I'm watching her, and I'm all like, proud papa. I'm like, woo. And so that was my opportunity to bless my daughter, just to let her know, well, babe, I'm so proud of you. I didn't think you had any talent, let alone that good talent. And so we got to look for opportunities to bless our children. Who knew? Number seven, understand your child's greatest need. Now the next four we're going to spend a little time on. Understand your child's greatest need. Understanding your child's greatest need begins with acknowledging their greatest problem. Their chief problem is that they are a born sinner. In Psalm 51 verse 5, David would write, in sin my mother conceived me. So we come out of the womb sinners. Your children did not enter this world pursuing God and his righteousness. They came, as every person does, a self-seeking sinner in need of a savior. A proclivity to sin drives their hearts and minds. The most urgent need of every child is regeneration through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Parents must discern whether their children actually have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. William Farley, in his must-read book for parents, titled Gospel-Powered Parenting States, and I'm quoting, most Christian parents assume that church attendance or youth group involvement equates to new birth. Parents are naive about new birth and its assumptions. One key reason that evangelicals often don't stand out, notes the author, is that the measure itself affiliating with an evangelical Protestant congregation is not a measure of dynamic religiosity, but simply one of affiliation. There is no shortage of religiously apathetic evangelical adolescents and adults in America. New birth is a radical change of heart that ushers in new desires, new loves, and a new life direction. And so we need to discern more than do they go to church? Are they a part of a youth group? We need to discern if they've been born again, if they've been regenerated. And we're going to discern that through their passions, through their loves, through what they're geared and hungry towards. He goes on to say, do not assume to take for, or take for granted that your child is a Christian. The new birth is evidenced in your child when you see his or her life, thinking and behavior begin to revolve around Jesus Christ. New birth is recognized by its fruit, not by a decision. The most important fruit is hunger for God. This is not to say that your child must exhibit the behavior and maturity of a seasoned Christian, but should show some evidence of genuine salvation. And so that point was understand your child's greatest need. Number eight, the father should lead in parenting. Turn to Ephesians chapter four with me. And we're going to look at the sister passage to Colossians, the one that we looked at in chapter three, but Ephesians chapter six. And we're going to spend a little time here. So that's why I want you to go ahead and turn with me there. So this is Ephesians chapter six. And notice with me, verse 4, the Bible says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So this is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Dr. Wade Horn, 
who served as president of the National Fatherhood Initiative, made this very gripping statement. If America continues on its present course, it will be known as the nation of the founding fathers with no fathers to be found. One of the most critical needs in our culture is for fathers to take an active role in parenting their children. In Ephesians 6.4, Paul instructs fathers to not provoke their children to wrath, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Greek word for father used in this verse is pater, P-A-T-E-R. It literally means father, not parents. God specifically singled out the father to assume the primary active role in the children and instruction of his children. Of course, this does not discount or diminish the mother's participation since she is in a one flesh relationship with her husband and is to assist him in accomplishing this purpose. As leaders of their homes, single parents assume the responsibility of following this command. As they face this crucial task, they must remember that they are not alone. The power of God resides with them. And so God's design, God's standard would be that fathers would take the responsibility to do this within the home. Number nine, train your children. Look at Ephesians chapter six, verses one through three. Ephesians 6, we're already there, verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 commands children to do two things, to obey and honor their parents. The Bible promises a twofold blessing to those children who keep these two commands. The flip side is that parents must realize that they are on a rescue mission to train their children to obey and give honor. That is, they must instruct their children so they will remain under God's umbrella of blessing. Verse 3, John MacArthur aptly states, children do not go bad because of something their parents do. They are born sinful and that sinfulness manifests itself because of what their parents do not do. And so there are things that God has instructed us to do. Kids come into the world already with sinful proclivities, right? They are sinful by nature. And so we are to do things, not create this thing. Following the commands given to children, God specifically instructs the father in Ephesians 6, 4. The father, with his wife's assistance and cooperation, as stated in key, in, um Key seven is commanded, one, to not provoke his children to anger, two, to bring them up, three, to use nurture, which is discipline or chastening, and then four, to use admonition, which is warning and instruction. So let's look briefly at each of these commands in general. In the general sense, a father provokes his children to wrath or anger when he does not take on the, the, the God-assigned responsibility to do what is stated in the rest of the verse. More specifically, some of the ways parents provoke a child to anger, and it means to enrage, uh, it includes showing favoritism. So that's one thing we're not to do as parents. You'll see it in Genesis throughout the patriarchs. You had individuals that were showing favoritism to certain of the kids. And the result is always horrendous. It's always sinful. So as parents, we're not to show favoritism to our children. Uh, Another thing uh, that we can 
um, provoke them is by discouraging them. So we need to be careful from discouraging them. Instead, we should what? Be encouraging them. Going on by neglecting them. Another thing is by hypocrisy. Another thing is by continually degrading them. Another thing, excessive discipline. By a lack of love. Another thing, by trying to make their child into what they wanted to be, but what could never achieve. And so I see this a lot in our culture. I see individuals that want to live vicariously through their children, through the successes of their children. How can you determine this? Well, go back to junior high school, and you could see if your parents wanted to live vicariously through your successes. You're given about two to three months to be able to come up with a science project. Remember that one? And so you have this great science project and all of these instructions that you're given. And there it is, that seventh or eighth grader. And so what happens is usually the weekend before it's due, you remind your mom or your mom reminds you or your dad that, oh, yeah, we got that three-month thing that was due. You know, I was supposed to do this long science project that never really kind of came to pass. And here's how you'll know, once again, for you as a parent and for you as a child of your parents, kind of were trying to live vicariously through you, okay? How much of that assignment was done by you and how much was done by your parents? And that's kind of how you know. See, if the kid didn't do what they were responsible to do, then ultimately that grade that they get is the grade they deserve. But somehow their parents are, no, my baby can't fail. There's no way that I'm going to let them fail. So the parents are in the garage doing whatever needs to be done. And, they, you know, and then you go to these science things where you see them laid out on the table and you're like, really? Really, Jimmy? You can't even spell your name and you did a rocket that flies to the moon? Really? Yeah, uh-huh, your dad did that, bro. Stop. You know, I mean, you begin to realize parents living vicariously through the successes of their children. And again, what we're supposed to do is definitely come alongside of them in that. What we're supposed to do is definitely remind them and assist them. But that grade is theirs. And sometimes we don't want them to fail for whatever reason. So we intervene a little too much. Be careful with that. It is interesting that the Greek word bringing them up is found in only one other place in the New Testament. Ephesians 5, 29 uses the same word to instruct a husband to nourish his wife as he would his own body. To bring up or nourish pictures the atmosphere in which the discipline, chastening, and instruction is given to the child. This atmosphere of nourishing conveys acceptance and continually offers affirmation of love, of your love to them. It encourages fertile ground in the heart of the child to receive the nurture and admonition that you give them. If you'll remember, in two cases, God the Father poked his head out of the clouds when he saw his son, and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He did that at the baptism of Jesus, before Jesus had done a miracle, before Jesus had served in any ministry capacity. The actual words are, this is my beloved son in whom I'm already well pleased. Please. And you'll remember in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I always do that which pleases the Father. And, and then, then again, at the Mount of Transfiguration, God would interrupt Peter as Peter kind of wakes up and says, hey, it's good that we're here. We should make two tents, one for you, Jesus, and one for Moses. And God's like, Peter, 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so we need to look for opportunities to encourage. Thirdly, you are to nurture the child. The word nurture is also translated instruction in 2 Timothy 3.16 and as chastening in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. It infers that you administer discipline to the child. While correcting the behavior of a child is necessary, the ultimate goal is to train the heart behind their behavior. As Ted Tripp writes, a change in behavior that does not stem from a change in heart is not commendable, it is condemnable. If you do not train the heart and get the heart behind the actions or the behavior of your children, then they will learn to manipulate and they will do things just to get. They need to do things because they're right. Tripp further explains, the child's heart is the world's smallest battleground and the conquering of it calls out for all-out hand-to-hand combat. As you train the child's heart, it is important to keep these verses in mind. Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 22, 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14 says, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from hell. Pretty powerful scriptures as it relates to discipline, specifically corporal punishment. Notice the word rod in these verses. God ordained that the parent use corporal punishment as a means to drive out the foolishness bound in the heart of the child. The rod refers to an instrument that is flexible and stings the child but is not injurious injurious to the child. It is to be used during times when the child is rebellious to your authority. Even psychologist Robert Larzalee admits that non-abusive spanking actually benefits a child more than alternative forms of discipline. He states that no other discipline Discipline technique, including timeout and withdrawal of privileges, had more beneficial results for children under 13 than spanking in terms of getting children to comply with their parents' wishes. Furthermore, according to an article in the U.S. News and World Report, parenting experts based all their findings against corporal punishment on a body of research that is at its best inconclusive and at worst, badly flawed. I take time to briefly mention the use of corporal punishment since it is such a controversial topic in our present culture. However, I am not saying that spanking is the only kind of discipline parents should administer. Other forms of punishment, such as withdrawing of privilege or timeout, can, in certain situations, be effective. Keep in mind that the Bible is specific that spanking should be used when a child exhibits a defiant or rebellious attitude. And so children shouldn't be spanked for being children. Children shouldn't be spanked for being immature. Children shouldn't be spanked for things that they just make mistakes with. There you are at the dinner table, and there she is, once again, spilling the milk. It's probably your fault. Move the milk away from her next time. Children will do things like that. 
That's not defiance. That's a child just being clumsy or a child being a child. And we shouldn't spank for those types of things. We shouldn't spank in anger. We shouldn't spank in frustration. That's not what the Bible is teaching. Where nurture refers more to what you do to the child, the use of the rod, admonition refers more to what you say to the child reproof. It includes warning, instructions, and teaching the child spiritual disciplines. So the only time we spank is defiance. You clearly delineate what the rules are. You clearly draw the line in the sand. And you say, you will not go past this line that I have drawn. And then the child says, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Like, that's what I'm going to do. And that gets their attention. That's defiance. And that's the foolishness that is bound up in the heart of a child that needs to be removed far from it. And what we've seen today is a passive approach to parenting. I'm going to count to one, two. No, the child has already exhibited defiance. The child clearly understands that you drew the line in the sand. They're jumping over it and telling you who's in charge. I'm going to run this show. You say, pop, no, you're not. I'm in charge and I'm half a step ahead of you. You will listen to me when I tell you what I need to tell you. Because a little small child doesn't understand the danger of running into the street. But they better understand you go into that street and I'm going to tag that behind. Boy, they understand that a lot better. And so we have to get a handle on this. Number 10, teach your children to reverence God. Perhaps one of the most overlooked yet necessary keys to raising God-honoring children is teaching them to walk in the fear of God. Simply stated, inspire them to have both a fascination and awe for the majesty of God. The most vital aspect of this teaching is a thorough understanding of God's attributes. I do find it interesting that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, before God talks to the parents about teaching their children, even before God teaches the parents to love God with everything that they have, in verse 3 he says, fear the Lord. Don't forget when you go into the land of Canaan, the land of promise, maintain a reverence for God. And so that's number 10, teach your children reverence for God. And then number 11, and this would seem out of order. I put this one in here uh, because I think it's very, very important. We'll close with this one. Number 11 is loving God more than anything else, including your family, sometimes looks like ministry comes first. I'm going to read that again. Loving God more than anything else, including your family, sometimes looks like ministry comes first. As a priority in life, God is to be my first priority. God is to be my highest priority. When Jesus is questioned by the scribes, he is asked, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we have horizontal relationships with people, and we have a vertical relationship with God. Our first priority, our highest calling, our number one in life is to be our vertical relationship with God. And God communicates truth to us. God has gifted us individually for ministry and ministry opportunities. And again, sometimes 
Obeying God looks like family takes a back seat or a second place. They do, not to ministry, but to God and what he's called you to. The examples of this throughout scriptures are many. I will give you one. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10, and we'll look at this account in Leviticus chapter 10. We'll look at verses 1 through 7. Leviticus, so it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, center of the law. The most quoted book in all of the Bible. I'm sorry, all of the New Testament. Leviticus is quoted more than any other book. So in Leviticus chapter 10, we're going to start at verse 1. It says, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Then Moses called Mishael and Eliphaz, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes lest you die and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall go out from the, you shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting lest you die for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Interesting little section of scripture, but The two sons of Aaron, Aaron is the high priest, serving God in the tabernacle. And the two sons of Aaron offer some strange thing on the altar to God that is not received by God. The next verse gives us kind of a hint, verse 8. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. And notice verse 10, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between clean and unclean, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them at the hand of Moses. And so there's something of this unaccepted sacrifice. Did they go into the temple drunk? Did they go to serve God under the influence, intoxicated? Well, we don't know, but there seems to be a hint of that. Regardless of what was offered, it wasn't received by the Lord, and he judged the sons of Aaron. So they were struck down and they died. But the interesting thing is, God speaks to Moses and tells Moses, I don't want Aaron to mourn the loss of his two sons. I want him to go. The anointing is upon him straight into the temple and continue to serve God. The rest of the family can bury them. The rest of the family can do what they need to do as far as the mourning. Aaron... Stay the course. Continue to serve me. Continue to do what I've called you to do in the temple. And again, kind of difficult to understand, difficult especially in our culture to to take in, but nonetheless, sometimes if God is my number one, it may look like the family at times will take a back seat. 
Our children need to grow up learning that they are not the center of the universe. The sun, the moon, and the stars do not rise and fall on our children. The sun, the moon, and the stars rise and fall on Jesus Christ. He is the center of the universe. And so it's very important that we teach our children that God comes first. I'll never forget this story. It was Pastor Damian Kyle from Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And as a little boy, he had a very, very tight and close relationship with his mother. And so he was driving in the car one day, and I don't know, he was seven years old or something, very young, and he knew that his mother loved him, and his mother knew that, uh, she, that her little boy loved him, and their relationship was extremely tight. And so his mom was driving down the street, and he you know, was talking to his mom, and he said, Mom, do you love me? Oh, son, you know I love you. No, I love you with everything. I love you just so much. You mean the world to me. And then he asked her, Mom, do you love me more than Jesus? And he says, I will never forget this day. My mom is driving on the highway. She pulls the car over, puts it in park, turns it off, takes her seatbelt off, turns and faces me and says, Son, understand this. I love you, and I love you a lot, but I don't love anything more than I love Jesus. Know this. There's nothing more that I love Jesus. And he said that stood out with him, and it stood. And he is an incredible pastor today of an awesome church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so I think, unfortunately, in our culture, we have raised many children as they are under our roof to think that they are the center of the universe and nothing could be further from the truth. All we're doing is setting them up for a big fat fail when they go and experience real life and they don't understand, oh, my mom and dad made me think that I was the center of the universe. You guys didn't get the memo, you know, and then they're all frustrated in life. And so we need to be very careful that we do teach our children that nothing is more important than God. And it may look like Family takes a back seat at times, but you know what? God needs to be first and foremost. We need to know what God has called us to, and we need to know, and we need to be faithful with that which God has called us to, and God will cover our children. And so let me go over the 10, and then I'll close with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one verse. Number one was develop a passionate relationship with God. Number two, strong marriages add stability to a child's life. Number three, make the word of God your standard. Number four, parents must be on the same page. Number five, protect your children. Number six, bless your children. Number seven, understand your child's greatest need. Number eight, the father should lead in parenting. Number nine, train your children. Number 10, teach your children to reverence God. And then number 11, loving God more than anything else, including your family, sometimes looks like ministry comes first. 1 Corinthians 15, 8, 58, I'll close with this verse, says, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in God is not in vain. And so whether that steadfastness is the season where we turn our hearts towards home and our children are small and we have the responsibility and the obligation to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord 
or rather that season is where we're kind of our kids are now out, a lot of empty nesters, where we have an opportunity to solely devote ourselves to God and the things of God. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. I'm thankful for a godly wife that gave me the opportunity to heed the calling that God had upon my life, who made a tremendous sacrifice in our home, who knew what her first ministry and calling was to make sure that she raised our four girls in the fear and the admonition of the Lord as she came, we came alongside one another in support of what God had called us to together. And so again, now we move through a new season as we are becoming these empty nesters at this I don't know, is the second stage of life? I feel like it's the last stage. I'm like about, oh my gosh, this is tiring. But wherever we're at, and so as we continue to move forward in the things that God has called us to, we're thankful for God and thankful to see what God has done and looking forward to the great things that God is going to do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we pray for every child that is represented in this room, Lord whether they be our children, those who we are discipling, Lord, those who are yet to come. I pray, Father, that you would give us the strength to do what you've called us to do, raising children in this crazy world that we live in. But Lord, what a joy, just the blessing to see our children walk in truth, no greater joy. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that at times, Lord, we can see the fruit of just uh, plugging in and plucking away and just doing what you've called us to. Father, I pray for any prodigals that are represented in this room. Lord, I pray that that prodigal would have a praying mother and or a praying father. And Lord, that we would never lose sight of praying for our children that have gone astray. No matter how deep they've gone into sin, no matter how far gone they might be, Lord, you are able to light a fire behind him and put a bridge right in front of him that leads to your feet. And so, Father, we pray for that. We pray that our prodigals would come home. And, Lord, I pray that we would continue to commune with you in prayer, praying for those who have gone astray. And so, Father, thank you so much for what you're doing within our midst. We just pray that you would continue to have your way in our hearts as we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.